when <clears throat> when I was a kid, uh, my family had this little summer house uh, upstate. It was in uh, Orange County, and it was a real, real simple little cottage um, near this very small little lake. Pretty remote, um, but we loved it. We loved it. I think we had it for about f- 15 years, maybe. Um, we had no phone. There was no landline. And, uh, I mean, this was the mid-70s, so, you know, there was no, no cell phone at all. So we had no phone. We had no phone at all. Uh, we'd go away, usually for the weekend, you know, Friday, get up there Friday night, get home sometime Sunday night. Long day, three-day weekends. Sometimes we'd go for a week, maybe in the, in the middle of the summer. And we had no phone. And doesn't that almost seem hard to believe now? that you could go away for two or three or four or five days and not have a phone, uh, not be reached. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, worst case scenario, you know, you could probably call the local police department, which was about 25 minutes away, and I guess they would track us down um, and they could get a hold of us. But presumption was, and the, the fact was, you really couldn't get us. Being away really meant being away. And a a question for you tonight to think about is, um, do you think that was better or worse? Was it better then or is it better now? I mean, I guess it depends, right? if we were away in that cottage in 1975 and somebody was having serious chest pains, cell phone would be very much appreciated. Or if, I don't know, somebody got bitten by a snake or whatever, the phone would be very much appreciated. It's probably a, a thousand scenarios where having a phone just objectively would be good more than good, maybe in some cases even like life-saving, right? But are there scenarios, are there circumstances where being unreachable, almost unreachable, let's say, practically unreachable, are there circumstances where that would actually be a good thing? Or maybe more specifically, I'll ask you this. Would being unreachable be good for our mental health and for our spiritual lives? Just being more disconnected, more unable to get a hold of. Like, would that be better for us? I think so. Um... And I suspect Jesus would say so. In fact, he does say so pretty much in this gospel. Remember last week he sent them out, the 12, he sent them off in, in pairs. He said, you know, pretty much take nothing with you and go preach me. Tell people about me. Well, that's what they did. And now today's gospel is they've returned from that mission. And right away he says to them, come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. 
Like, in other words, guys, go someplace where you pretty much can't be reached. So I think from that, we can probably say, yeah, there's, there's got to be something to this unreachable thing, or almost unreachable thing. There's got to be something good about it. I don't know, some of you may remember back in the, I guess this was the, the early 90s, there was a book, pretty big best-selling book, it was called The uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, written by this guy, Stephen Covey. It was a pretty good book, it was just about um, kind of making goals for your life and right priorities and just not letting crazy stuff get in the way of the stuff that really does matter. Kind of a self-help book, leadership book. Anyway, listen to this quote from him. He says, it's incredibly easy to get caught up in an activity trap, in the busyness of life, to work harder and harder climbing the ladder of success, only to discover that it's leaning against the wrong wall. You realize you put the ladder up on the wrong wall. You climbed the ladder, you got to the top of it fast. But when you got to the top, or maybe on your way up, you realized, man, this isn't the right wall. Well, I do think there's something to that. Have you ever climbed the wrong ladder? I mean, we all have, right? In, in some ways. Probably got too worked up, too consumed by something, someone, and you climb that ladder, and you realize, man, that was, that was dumb. I hurt people in the process. Maybe I hurt myself along the way. God, I was the wrong wall. With a little more disconnect, with a little bit more, I'm sorry, I can't be reached. Would that be a good thing for us? have a little bit more quiet in our lives to sort of evaluate the wall and make sure I'm putting the ladder on the right wall. I think time, or silence rather, and distance does help us with that. You know, when I was in the seminary, we had to take these courses, um, learned a lot about spirituality, the ways in which God, you know, works in our lives, the ways in which God kind of communicates to us. We took courses and we had conferences and we had retreats. We had a, everybody had a spiritual director, which pretty much was like a one-on-one -on -one relationship with like a, almost like a therapist, just to talk about the spirit. They were always talking about silence, whether it was the retreat it was the conference, it was some article we had read, it was the spiritual director. They were always telling us about, basically, would you just shut up and distance yourself from what you're used to. Try to separate yourself from distractions. You can't do it all the time. We're not monks. But you gotta have a little bit of that monk thing in you if you wanna have a good connection to God. A couple of years ago, I was at dinner with a family and uh, parishioners. They had a couple of kids. I guess the oldest was maybe, I don't know, 13 or 14. 
we were having dinner and we're in the, the, the dining room table and this kid had the fo- his whole phone in his hand the entire meal. It was like he never took his eyes off of the phone. He was texting, reading texts. I don't know what he was doing. But I swear he wasn't connected to us at all. And I get it. You know, he was a kid and his parents and the priest are sitting there. I didn't expect him to be fully engaged with us. But this was crazy. I wanted to smack the phone out of this kid's hand. It was so rude. I was looking at the parents thinking like, are you for real? Like, would you tell him to drop the phone? You're at the dinner table. At least pretend you're interested. Pretend you want to be here. At least show that level of respect. Man, it was just like bad form. I think it was also probably a kid who was sort of on some level kind of addicted to his phone. How is that a good thing? And are we looking at the likes of that? Like we know it, we kind of see it, we're sort of troubled by it, we may be even a little embarrassed by it, but are we doing anything about it? Listen to this, this is a quote from, it's interesting, these spiritual writers from like the beginning of the church until today, for 20 centuries, spiritual writers have been kind of saying the same thing about you gotta quiet down, and you gotta turn it off. You gotta unplug it, and you gotta distance yourself from the people in a healthy way. Listen to what this guy says. All human beings are deeply spiritual by virtue of just being human, even if not all of us are equally in touch with that part of our nature. So, how can we develop or deepen an awareness of our spiritual side? Probably the best and maybe the only way to, is to really discover this in solitude and in silence. In these days of multimedia, technology, sensory overload, it's become increasingly important that we consciously seek out time and space to spend alone. Otherwise, we risk feeling disconnected and alienated, trapped in the superficial things and dramas which will inevitably present, like climbing up the wrong ladder. You know, I was at, uh, last week for a couple of days, I was up at my brother's house. He's got a house in Rhode Island and he's got, um, sort of in his basement, he's got a treadmill. So I decided to go for a run on the treadmill. And it was actually, for me, it was a pretty good run. You know, it wasn't crazy long, but it was good, good for me. And the last, maybe quarter mile, I said, uh, let me try and finish up strong. So I, you know, hit the button a couple of times to up the, the speed of the treadmill. So I'm sort of like, I'm moving now and I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, all right, I just gotta get done with this quarter mile. And, uh, and, I, and I, <laughs> I tripped or I lost my balance. And like, I turned into like a cartoon character. Like I shot across the treadmill and kind of landed against the handrail. It was embarrassing. I'm glad nobody saw it. Although I'm now giving you a mental picture of it, so. I just was going too fast. I just, I just was going faster than I was really able to go. And that's what happens when you go faster than you should. You look stupid. Sometimes we become stupid, like you, crazy stuff can happen. Far worse than getting knocked off the treadmill. You ever feel like your life 
is on that treadmill, you ever feel like you're just like, man, we're going way too fast. We never stop. We never slow down. We never disconnect. We are never in a circumstance where we really pretty much can't be reached. So because of that, we never really slow down. I mean, maybe we get a little bit slower, but not, not really. I mean, I, isn't it crazy now, like the, the reality of vacation? Like, you continue to get phone calls. You get them at all. I mean, I remember, I don't know, 20 years ago, it was sort of like nobody really ever called you before 9 in the morning. I mean, now you get calls at 7.30 in the morning on your cell. I guess the presumption is you're sitting there waiting for the call. God, I don't know how that's a good thing. Or at least long term, I don't know how that's a good thing. Maybe it's somebody you really care about. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your adult kids who just run around like lunatics, driving their kids everywhere, every day. But they never slow down with them. They never say like, no, no, we're not doing that today. I'm just gonna hang out, go out and throw the ball around in the backyard. Go for a bike ride. Like, no, we're not, I'm not driving you here. We're not gonna taxi you there. And by the way, if you don't put the phone down, I'm gonna flush it down the toilet. Like we don't ever, do we think about that? Do you get off the treadmill? Or maybe before that, like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, am I, is the treadmill, is my treadmill just going way too fast? Well, Jesus said in this gospel, for your own sake, for our sake, slow it down. Here's another quote. Nothing so much resembles the language of God as does silence. We hear God most in silence. I just, I think that's something we should latch on to. We hear God most in silence. It's not the only way. It's not the only place. But man, for 20 centuries, spiritual experts have been saying some version of that. So, if I'm never really intentionally silent, prayerfully quiet, if I never intentionally say, I, I can't be reached, that's probably not good. Because if I hear God in silence and I'm not really silent very often, we'll do the math. I'm probably not ever gonna, I'm not gonna be so good at hearing God and knowing what God wants of me. And when I don't hear God, I fall off the treadmill. You know, there was about, I guess about 10 years ago, I remember reading this story about this, um, it was in Iowa, there was this uh, synagogue somewhere in Iowa, and it was vandalized, pretty seriously vandalized by these uh, neo-Nazi nuts, all this uh, anti-Semitic uh, graffiti. Anyway, uh, you know, so the community was outraged, as you'd expect. About two weeks later, they make an arrest. Uh, two kids, uh, an 18-year-old guy and his 17-year-old girlfriend, were responsible. But before they were prosecuted, uh, the rabbi of the synagogue said, uh, I'd like to meet with them, could I? And they, they said, oh, yeah, sure. So they met at the synagogue, and this rabbi brought two extra guests to this meeting. They were two Holocaust survivors. And uh, they just told these two kids their story about the Nazi atrocities, about family members that they lost, and just the horror of it all. And they say that these two kids were just speechless, like spellbound. 
And then the rabbi asked these kids to tell their story. Anyway, the boy did, I guess, did most of the talking, and he talked about, he described this, sounded like a pretty wacky family that he grew up in. His uh, mother's boyfriend was physically abusive and whacked him so hard one day, it uh, damaged permanently his hearing, which then impacted on his speech. He had this sort of permanent speech impediment as a result. And then as a result of that, he just became in school a target of bullying. And it was a pretty crazy family, like I said, so at a certain point he just runs away, about 15 years old. And he meets this white supremacy group. And they kind of take him in. And then they indoctrinate him. And then he went to Iowa, hoping to start his own neo-Nazi group. Anyway, they met for three hours in the synagogue. And uh, they say the, uh, the, the community, this Jewish community uh, of this synagogue, um, came to see these kids in a different light. I mean, nobody made little of what they had done, but they just came to see these kids as sort of pathetic and lost and broken. Ultimately, very scared, insecure kids. And clearly, these two kids came to see the Jewish people in a very different light. All kind of the ugly hate stuff that they had been told about. They were like, this isn't true. This isn't, none of this is playing out. So they asked for forgiveness. And the community said, well, yes, but you need to, uh, you need to show, show your sorrow. So they did hours of community service. And then the Jewish community responded. They helped these two kids who had uh, quit high school. They helped the two of them get their GED, their high school diploma. The guy had a bunch of tattoos, you know, ugly Nazi tattoos on his arms. They, they gave him money to get the tattoos removed. And the charges were dropped. And it all happened because of that rabbi and what he saw. He saw lost sheep. He, sh he knew that these two were just shepherdless, and he pitied them. Sound familiar? Jesus was moved with pity for the vast crowd, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. One rabbi just saw the same that the other rabbi saw. I think silence just helps us see things differently. I think when we're silent, we see things the way Jesus saw things. Or that rabbi saw. Everybody saw these two losers who had trashed the synagogue. And that's clearly what they did, but something in this rabbi said, well, let me, let me look a little bit deeper. So, I just think we need to retrieve silence. We've got to try. Because I think it's been stolen from us, or sort of hijacked from us. And I'm not saying, let's go back to 1975 and no phones. I mean, of course we can't do that. But I am saying technology, as great and life-saving as it can be, and we know this, it can also be damaging to our spirit because it makes us too reachable. And it keeps us from being quiet.
And that's not a good thing. Hey, remember, I guess it was in the 70s when the culture saw it, kind of said, you know what? Smoking is crazy. You know, I, I mean, before that, I guess they started to know about the connection to cancer, but there was this absolute effort to say, all right, we're going to make smoking really, uh, we're not going to encourage it. We're going to make it different. Hey, remember, if you're old enough, remember you could smoke on a plane? How crazy that was? In the back couple of rows, there was a smoking section. And if you were the poor fool who bought the, the last seat in the non-smoking section, you were sitting in a cloud of smoke for a flight to Europe. Watch a TV show from the 60s or the 50s. The doctor's standing over the patient's bed and he lights up a butt as he's describing her condition. I'm like, what? The culture just didn't, we saw smoking in a different light and somewhere along the way we said, this is not good. Smoking's not good for us. And we kind of have shifted things in a good way. Well, on some level, I think maybe we need to do that with technology. If we care about our spirit, if we care about wanting to hear God, it's like a, a conductor when he's getting ready to begin with the orchestra. You know, what does he do right before the music begins? He kind of raises his arm, he's got like that baton thing in his hand, and he holds it up, and then he waits for a second or two. There's silence. There's this silent pause. And then the music begins. Somebody told me that's so that we appreciate the music. Create silence, and then you discover the music. Create silence, and then you hear the music. So when we do that consciously and deliberately, and kind of even aggressively, we invite in the silence. And then we climb the right ladders.